Good evening. This is Milton Rosenberg. Welcome again to Extension 720. You remember that in the book of Genesis, we are told male and female created he them. An old psychology professor of mine many years ago in graduate school uh, did a variant on that and said, stupid and smart created he them. In fact, human beings vary a great deal in what we commonly call intelligence. And from that fact, there follow many interesting questions of social policy. Uh, how do you best educate the truly intelligent or the higher in intelligence? And what do you do with those who are lower in intelligence? By the way, why is there such a clear correlation between socioeconomic status and measured intelligence level? Is there also a difference between different ethnically defined or quote, racially defined groups, differences in intelligence. These questions have haunted us for years in psychology and beyond in educational policy. And many important uh, and serious social scientists have uh, turned their attention to those questions. One of them is, of course, my guest tonight. That's Richard Nisbet, a distinguished social psychologist, in fact, from the University of Michigan, who's the author of many important works, the most recent, is titled Intelligence and How to Get It, Why Schools and Cultures Count. This book offers the suggestion, by the way, that this might be of particular interest to parents, that uh, if you want to improve your kid's intelligence, there are ways to do it. Intelligence is not solely genetically determined and genetically limited. Indeed, about half of it is available for manipulation and for boosting upwards. So, if you want to boost your kids' intelligence upwards, or for that matter, your own, uh, this will be a program of special interest to you. Uh, and if you're just generally interested in questions of educational policy in relation to what we do with the more and the less intelligent students, uh, this should be a program of considerable interest. And by now, it's time to get out of the way and get the news, and then we'll get right down to cases with Richard Nisbet. So now to the newsroom and Jim Goodis, the old social psychologist who runs this program is delighted to have as a guest tonight one of the most eminent social psychologists in the country. Uh, Richard E. Nisbet uh, is professor of psychology, of social psychology at the University of Michigan. He is a celebrated author. Uh, he has been much concerned over his career with questions of human variation in cognitive function, uh, examining differences between uh, different culture-based groups and how they tend to use their intelligence. He's also very much seized of the problem that uh, agitates educators and psychologists and has for years, namely whether there are differences in IQ between different identifiable groups within the broad student population. Uh, differences at, uh, based upon class difference, uh, on class divisions or based for that matter upon ethnic divisions or upon so-called racial divisions. And he approaches all of that question uh, in his new book, Intelligence and How to Get It, Why Schools and Cultures Count. Good evening and welcome. Thank you. I want to offer you instantly a quotation I've got here, which leads us into this subject in a rather indirect way, from no less a source than The Prince by Niccolo Machiavelli, who says, um, the first method for estimating the intelligence of a ruler is to look at the men he has around him. What does that tell you? Is it true? Well, I like, I like the idea, and I think it is. I think it is. True. It suggests that intelligent people cluster together, doesn't it? Right. Well, there's, a, there's an, a, an expression I read a while back that 
Um, Third-rate people like to be surrounded by fifth-rate people, and second-rate people like to be surrounded by third-rate people, and first-rate people like to be surrounded by people who are better than they are. <laughs> Interesting. Where, what's the source of that? I have one? no idea. It's I would great, love to know. It's a great Maybe one of your listeners will know. <laughs> let, let us hope so. It is a great observation. But coming more directly to it, and to the question of quotations, I now offer you, if I can get my hands on it, yes, I have my hands on it, um, a number of definitions of intelligence. The most difficult thing about this subject is this, uh, om for almost every expert, you get a different definition of what intelligence is. Alfred Binet, whom we know as the founder of intelligence testing, essentially, French psychologist who developed the Binet test of intelligence, later adapted into the Binet Stanford, wasn't it, mm -hmm. um, defines intelligence as follows. Judgment, otherwise called good sense, practical sense, initiative, the faculty of adapting oneself to circumstances, auto-critique. Um, David Wexler, the man who put together a very commonly used intelligence test, the Wexler-Bellevue Adult Intelligence Scale, which in my, uh, in my salad days as a psychology graduate student, I used to administer on occasion mm. to patients at Kings County Hospital in New York. Mm. Uh, when I was an undergraduate, in fact. Um, Wexler uh, defines intelligence as the aggregate or global capacity of the individual to act purposefully, to think rationally, and to deal effectively with his environment. Then Cyril Birch, Sir Cyril, who was stripped of his knighthood after his death for reasons that we didn't go into now, but he had falsified some of his data, apparently, but he was a great expert on intelligence uh, over in the UK simply defines intelligence as innate, general, cognitive ability. I've got more definitions, but there are three right now. Right. Do any of those appeal to you? Well, certainly the last one doesn't appeal to me at all. Uh, uh, Bert was uh, well known for his position that intelligence just sort of manifests itself. I mean, you could put somebody in a closet like a mushroom and they would be as intelligent as their genes would And allow. it was totally genetically controlled. Totally genetic. As Bert saw it. Yeah, he was very, he was, uh, and that has remained the position of a lot of people in Britain. Of course, he did, as we, as you well know, uh, many studies with identicals reared apart and published and published and published. And the reason he lost his knighthood after, posthumously, so to speak, is it was eventually discovered by an American psychologist, you will remember who, I forget, who... Kamen, was that? It was Kamen, exactly who researched it and found that uh, the data weren't there, the colleagues that published mm -hmm. with him didn't exist, and began to uh, assert that this was all made-up material. Right. Although I think actually his conclusion is one that would still be endorsed today by many psychologists. That is, mm -hmm. the idea that intelligence is 80% heritable. Um, is one that many people in the field today would agree with. Incidentally, Sir Cyril, if I remember correctly, was the founder of the organization called Mensa. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. The organization for terribly bright people. Well, we come, we've come already to the base. Well, you still haven't defined. Tell me what you mean by intelligence. Oh, Lordy. I, the first two did a better job than I could ever do on All the right. fly. Uh, it has something to do with uh, cognitive ability, certainly, but cognitive abilities to profit from experience and to use that experience, uh, perhaps to abstract it or to conceptualize from it in ways that allow effective adaptation in the large world. Right. Sounds good to me. Is that all right? That yeah. will do it. Yeah, well, but you give courses. When you start a course in these matters, what do you tell your students 
as you open the course and define intelligence. Actually, I don't teach intelligence. The interesting thing is intelligence is basically not taught in the U.S. Uh -huh. I don't know why. I mean, it's a huge literature, and to me it's fascinating, of course, but uh, it's not taught, um, and I don't know why. Um, but I would, you know, I, would, I would say, if I forced to give a, a definition on the fly, I would say it, it has to do with being able to think effectively, uh, to be able to be uh, uh, sensible uh, about everyday life problems, uh, to be able to come up with uh, solutions to problems that other people might find difficult, uh, to be uh, shrewd. Uh, so pretty much the same thing as your first two definitions. Why, when in, in a clinical setting, and if one wants to estimate intelligence, say, of a patient uh, who may be in a psychiatric hospital for other reasons still, do we use such routines as, for example, uh, digit repetition? We say a string of five or six or seven numbers and ask the person to repeat them. Mm -hmm. Or we give them four or five numbers and ask them to repeat them backwards. We assume that somehow that skill and that performance ability that shows up is correlate with general intelligence. Right. Why do we think so? Well, in fact, it is, just empirically. It, it is associated with that. Uh, that particular test is a test of what's called working memory. Mm -hmm. uh, it's that, that means uh, how many elements can you uh, maintain in thought at the same time and manipulate them. A lot of problems require holding in mind certain concepts or certain concrete uh, facts and while you manipulate some of them and then go back to the to your short-term memory or your working memory to retrieve uh, the items that you have to have as you work on the problem and uh, people turn out to differ quite a bit in that I mean some people with those digit retention some mm -hmm. people can retain actually it turns out although many people in the intelligence field would say this is a manifestation of, of uh, genetic in a genetically provided intelligence, uh, it turns out that digit retention is extremely trainable. Uh, mm -hmm. You can get people able to retain 100 digits. I mean, the normal span is about seven digits forward and about four or five digits backward. Um, and uh, But you can get people to, to do vastly better than that. Uh, but it's, it certainly is correlated with general intelligence. Before you came in, I did the pre-introduction of this program, and I quoted a professor of mine. In fact, it was Clyde Coombs at the University of Michigan, mm -hmm. uh, where I did my doctorate and where you have taught for many years, who, uh, borrowing from the book of Genesis, male and female created he them, parroted that, and said, smart and stupid created he them, and, uh, which argues, which, which leans in the direction of genetic determination of intelligence. Mm -hmm. The basic question before the House right now surely is, how much a genetic determination of intelligence uh, can be demonstrated, and for that which is not genetic, what are the in, the environmental factors or the experiential factors? What are the nurture versus nature factors which can uh, alter or affect level of intelligence in the functioning of children and in the functioning of adults? That is the question before us. That's the question you address in your new book, Intelligence and How to Get It, and that's the question we shall consider right after we pause for these words. And we return directly to Richard Nisbet, author of the new book, Intelligence and How to Get It, Why Schools and Cultures Count. But uh, 
Richard, with your permission, I'm going to bring another voice into this conversation. You know a good deal about Charles Murray, undoubtedly. Yes, I do. And you probably debated him in your time, haven't you? I haven't debated him uh, in person. I've debated him in print. Yeah. Well, you've you've done counter books. Right. His book, which appeared only a few months ago, uh, and is titled um, Real Education, Four Simple Truths to Bringing America's Schools Back to Reality, argues the genetic principle and applies it to the question of how we should reorganize American education. Mm -hmm. You're arguing a vast amount, a, a, good, a goodly portion of intelligence is controllable through experience and through uh, culture and schooling and, and programs introduced in schooling. I want to enter his argument and put it before our listeners. He was with us on this program almost exactly two months ago, indeed on December 4th of uh, 2008. And uh, after we listen to this excerpt, then of course I want your full response to it. Here it is, Charles Murray on this program two months ago. Early on in the book, one of my, and when I'm complaining about the uh, current state of education, I, I had referred to two children sitting in the same uh, classroom in fourth grade, and one of them was reading uh, uh, a Tale of Two Cities for Fun, and the other one can barely read a sentence. And they're both sitting there, same classroom, both near tears, because one is so bored and the other is so frustrated. The, the thesis of the book, first page this comes out, is that the system is living a lie. And the lie is, that any child can be uh, whatever he wants to be if the schools only do their job. And that means everybody can go on through to a college degree if the schools do their job. You are arguing with George Bush uh, in that he has fronted for, and indeed he coined the phrase, uh, uh, the, um, the bigotry of low expectations. Soft the soft bigotry the soft of low, uh, low bigotry. expectations, yeah. yes. That all of our kids are capable of Everything, if only we make it possible for them. It's educational romanticism. Hmm. Uh, I don't think anybody in their heart of hearts believes it. I mean, d does anybody really believe that a youngster who is functioning at the fourth grade level when he's in seventh grade could have become a nuclear physicist if only the schools had worked better? I don't think so. I think that any parent who has more than one child understands that their two children are different in all sorts of ways. Different not only in intellectual capability, but different in skills or what you call ability. Right. And once you have those two children as a parent, you become deeply aware of how little you are able to make those two children the same. I, I was a parent a long time ago. I'm still a parent. But now I am a grandparent. And it fascinates me to observe my two grandchildren. Uh, one is a boy, and he's 12 now. The other is a girl who's approaching eight. And they are very, very different. They're both, I think, quite bright, but they're very different in their social skills. She is much more socially involved and, and activated. He's rather distant and thoughtful and a bit, a bit of a nerd. And his intention already fully formed is to go to MIT, uh, whereas she's just thinking she wants to be a dancer. And you are not going to make those kids switch their aspirations. But of course, how much of that is a male-female difference? Well, it, I think you can take any two brothers and any two sisters, and you can come up with the same kinds of differences. Uh, children are simply different, and when it's our own children, we do have a sense of the limits and what can be mm -hmm. done. We, we work with what they've got, their strengths and their weaknesses. The same is true of all children. And the, the issue here is not ranking children in a hierarchy from good to bad. The issue is what is best for each child in terms of that child realizing his or her potential. Is it your second simple truth that half of all children are below average? Are below average, unlike the children at Lake Wobegon, 
That's, yes, we do not live in Lake Wobegon. Half of the children are below average, and Milt, the thing that I actually spend most of the time in that chapter trying to do is to get my readers to get a grip on what below average means in terms of verbal ability and math ability. Because a great many people that you and I hang out with have never had close personal contact with people in the lower half of the distribution. We segregate ourselves from the times where we go to school and to college and in our jobs. And when we think of people who are below average intellectually, we're probably thinking about people in the 60th percentile. But in our world, they're below average. And that is pernicious. Because when you don't understand how a huge chunk of the American population functions, you're going to make some very bad decisions uh, if, if you have power over their lives. But is that because they are naturally ungifted, so to speak, or are they rather stunted in their development by virtue of, to use the uh, tired word, which stands for so much, by virtue of environmental factors? Well, let's back off for a minute and not get too locked in on intellectual ability. Uh, talk, you it, talk about the other yeah, abilities it, it as well. It may surprise some uh, people who know my past work, but I have kind words to say about Howard Gardner and multiple intelligence. You start, in this you book. start yeah. with him in this book. Isn't and and, and the, the reason is that Howard Gardner, forget about the psychometric issues, he's wrong on them, but that's not important. Let's make clear what he stands for, which is uh, his theory of multiple intelligences. Uh, being smart in the conventional sense is only one of some seven different modes right, yes. of intelligence. And, and let me just run through them quickly. There's kinesthetic, which is basically athletic, mm -hmm. small motor skills. Uh, there is visual, spatial, interpersonal, charm, empathy things, intrapersonal, self-discipline, industriousness, uh, so forth and so on, logical, mathematical, and linguistic. And so when we talk about intellectual ability, we're really talking about logical, mathematical, and linguistic. And so when people say to me, IQ isn't everything, amen. I absolutely agree. So when you're talking about a youngster who is having a hard time getting a hold of algebra, that has nothing to do with his dignity as a human being, and for that matter, it has nothing to do with a whole bunch of other characteristics that he could have that would be terrific. Of course, as you well know, Richard, uh, he goes on in that book, and, and indeed in this conversation, of which that was only a brief excerpt, to argue very strongly that most of uh, what we call intelligence is genetically determined and cannot be heavily affected and uh, by uh, by changes in culture, by programs in school, and therefore we'd better be realistic and take the less intelligent kids and not send them to college at all. Well, um, I'm embarrassed to find that I agreed with most of that clip <laughs> from Murray because uh, my book is the antimatter to his matter. I noted. And his uh, 1994 book. Uh, yeah, his book, The Bell Curve, which makes it a stronger, more direct presentation than this one does, right. I would suppose. Right. Uh, well, on the issue of heritability, um, the, there is a core of the intelligence field which believes that IQ, at least by uh, adulthood, is about 80% heritable. Um, and many people think that that means, oh, my intelligence, 80% of it is determined by my genes. It's fate. Uh, right, it's fate. Well, that's experts in intelligence will tell you that's the wrong way to think about it. Heritability does not refer to anything about individuals. It refers to the population. So that 80% heritable means that the trait is 
accounts for uh, the genetics accounts for 80% of the variance in the population, uh, which is a very different thing from thinking about what it means for the individual. Uh, first of all, I don't think that uh, IQ uh, is 80% heritable. Uh, I think it's substantially less than that. I certainly think it's considerable, but much less than 0.8. Uh, several errors uh, have been made by, this just gets pretty technical pretty quickly, so, but you'll wave me away from it if uh, you think I'm getting uh, too technical. Uh, how do they reach the conclusion that uh, intelligence is 80% heritable? Well, you look at the uh, correlation, this degree of similarity between identical twins who were raised in different environments. And that turns out to be around 0.75 or 0.8. Uh, and so the conclusion is reached, well, the, these people are in different environments, so the environment's not, con you know, it can't be invoked here. They're in very different environments. And they're, and they're highly similar. The correlation is about 0.8. Let's, make, let's clear what, uh, make very clear what that means. Just assume a w woman who dies in childbirth and the identical twins, two boys, are given up for adoption, and one is adopted by a college professor and is raised in that family, and the other is adopted by, a, uh, say, a steel worker uh, someplace in Pennsylvania right. and is raised in that family, and uh, a family of uh, uh, good parents, but uh, they've got no college education, and the school system he goes to isn't as good as the school system that the other identical twin goes to in the university town where he is raised. And then when you get those two and you test them in adulthood, they turn out what? Well, in the story that the people in the, that the IQ fundamentalists, as I describe them, mm -hmm. uh, in their story, uh, they're going to have the same IQ, or very close. Meaning, environment has had very little influence that's upon right. the development of intelligence. Right. Uh, we know that's wrong. Uh, it turns out that uh, first of all, it's very rare for people to be adopted into such different environments. Mm -hmm. Typically, identical twins are adopted in the same town, often by relatives, go to the same school. So you're, when you look at that correlation that's, that's so high, you're looking at something that's due in part to genetics and in part to environment, which is also... Because they had similar environment, actually. Right. And when, um, uh, when you look at uh, people who have been... Uh, identical twins who've been raised in highly similar environments, uh, their correlation is, in fact, 0 0.8, 0 0.85. It's very high. They are extremely similar. But when you look at identical twins who've been raised in very different environments, uh, you find that the correlation goes down to 0 0.3, 0 0.4, 0 0.5. So uh, when, you, when you really do the, the experiment there of, uh, that you described, you get substantial difference. In fact, that experiment that you described has been done repeatedly. It's called adoption, uh, and, uh, and there are several studies that look at the effect of adopting a kid into a, a lower-class kid now, a kid born to a worker or someone on welfare. You look at a kid like that who's raised either in a lower-class family or in an upper-middle-class family, and you now look at what is the expected difference in IQ between those two kids, and the answer is 15 points. Now, 15 points is a lot. It's the difference between somebody who might be expected to graduate from high school without much distinction, maybe take a year or two of community college, uh, versus someone who's pretty much a sure thing for college and who's a candidate uh, for going on to graduate or professional school. So it's an absolutely huge difference. We know it's completely environmental. Uh, I've got to interrupt you for a moment. We're uh, overdue for 
a, um, a news break, which we'll take in a second, but I'll put this on the table. One other great difference, which shows up in data and has shown up in data uh, for many, many years, is the difference between, say it straight and honestly, between Caucasians and, uh, and African Americans. In this country, uh, there is some, on average, perhaps as much as a 15 uh, point IQ difference on average granting that these are overlapping distributions. And it is asserted by some, indeed it is asserted by Charles Murray and Murray and Hernstein in that original book, The Bell Curve, which caused a lot of stir, that much of that variance is attributable to a genetic difference. Uh, that, of course, uh, is a hurtful judgment and it's one that made many, very people, many people very angry. And there are other ways of interpreting such findings and you deal in those other ways of interpreting them. And we'll turn to that and related matters after an update on the news from Jim Goodis. Our guest tonight is Richard Nisbet, who is a leading member of the social psychological profession. He is professor of that discipline at the University of Michigan and is the author most recently of a book titled Intelligence and How to Get It, Why Schools and Cultures Count. And we were in the middle of a conversation about, and I had a, a rather abruptly uh, interfere with it because we had to go to the, uh, the newscast. But the basic question before us still is, how can we assess what uh, is the scope and the potency of the genetic component of intelligence, and to what degree is intelligence modifiable on an experiential basis? Well, uh, we know that um, that intelligence is highly modifiable because of this these adoptive uh, experiments that have been done repeatedly in various ways. So that, that settles the question as to whether intelligence is manipulable across a large range. Now, that's a pretty big manipulation. I mean, the, the difference between putting someone mm -hmm. for growing up in a lower class household and an upper middle class household. So when we think about interventions, the question is how close can we come to that? I mean, to, to influence intelligence. Um, and that's a topic I talk about in lots of different ways in the book. What's the outcome of, of the studies that you've looked at and the studies that you yourself have conducted? There are statistical studies over vast populations. What really stands on? Well, uh, one of the uh, concerns that a lot of people have is what, what do you do with poor minority kids um, who have lower IQs, who have expected lifetime outcomes that are pretty low? Uh, Head Start was begun 40 or 50 years ago, uh, not actually as an IQ improvement program, although a lot of people think that was the, the intention. Actually, it was primarily concerned with the health and well-being of those kids. And from that standpoint, the Head Start program has been very effective. The mortality rate for kids in the Head Start program is the same as the mortality rate uh, for kids nationwide in general. So it's been extremely successful in that respect. It hasn't been very successful in making these kids smarter. It gets short-term effects that are not trivial on, intelligent, on intelligence and, uh, and effects that are uh, modest uh, in early elementary school. And these fade by mid-elementary school. And there's typically not much an outcome difference uh, after that. Now, of course, these kids are typically being put back into very mediocre school environments and poor home environments from the standpoint of developing intelligence. And many of those black kids are going back to families where the mother uh, doesn't know much about mothering. Right. And there is no resident father 
right. in the situation. Right. And he's going back to mean streets, so to speak. That's right. So you can't just pump a kid full of, of uh, intellectual goodies and expect that that's going to sustain itself throughout life. I mean, there are two different models for uh, intelligence. One is that uh, intelligence is, is like clay. I mean, you mold it early on, and that's what the person has uh, throughout life. The other model is that intelligence is like a muscle. Uh, and you can't expect someone who's had a fair amount of intellectual stimulation, let's say early in life, age three, four, or five, put them into a, a poor in environment and expect that intelligence gain to sustain itself. There's an interesting finding turned up by various people, and uh, a man we both knew, Bob Zions, who was for many years at the University of Michigan, um, did some early work, did some interesting papers on this, and it's the difference in uh, intelligence based upon an ordinal position. It turns out, as a pretty reliable, I, I think this is true, correct me if I'm wrong, but as a pretty reliable finding across various cultures, firstborns test higher in IQ than do laterborns. Is that right? That's right. Uh, firstborns uh, test higher than secondborns, who test higher than thirdborns, etc. And uh, you remember science's interpretation of why that happens. Right. He calls it the confluence model. And it, it simply put, uh, that firstborn kid is born into an environment where the average intelligence is 100, because that's the average intelligence in the population at large. And that's, he grows up that, uh, to age two, three, four, whatever. Uh, and then you introduce into that environment somebody really stupid, namely a newborn. And now the average intelligence in that environment is 100 for the mother, 100 for the father, whatever the kid is at that point uh, in terms of development, which is not very high, and this very low intelligence. So this second-born kid is getting exposed to an environment that's not as smart as the first-born kid, and so on. It just keeps going that way. And, and parents aren't talking to him as much as they talked to the first-born, who was an only child for some right. while. That's right. So in entirely aside from this, just the statistics of it, the mathematics of it, the firstborn kid is getting a lot. Um, and the, the firstborn kid then gets something by virtue of having this less intelligent person around. He gets to teach that kid. Uh, so he's learning from the parents, and he's teaching this uh, less intelligent person. So he's getting a double whammy that's increasing his intelligence. Um, so it's this teacher effect and learner effect that, that, that's <laughs> terrific for the firstborn and gets progressively worse for each child. Let's come directly to the question of uh, black versus white with regard to intelligence and with regard to potential. Murray's argument in his first major book, The Bell Curve, and then in the more recent one, is essentially it's a bad investment to try to boost up all the black kids uh, so, as, um, so they can perform at college levels. They're just going to have uh, humiliating and otherwise disappointing experiences. Obviously, some are going to be quite competent and quite capable. They're at the higher end of the curve. But there's a, but since the curves overlap between Caucasian and, uh, and black, and they overlap in favor with regard to intelligence, in favor of Caucasians, you have to face the fact that lots of the black kids aren't really going to profit as much as we hope to make them profit and get realistic about what kinds of schooling you put them through. So says Murray. What do you say? Well, um, Murray is associated with the position that most of the difference uh, between blacks and whites in IQ, and there is a difference, uh, is due to genetics. 
Uh, Murray's also, until very recently, associated with the view that the IQ difference between blacks and whites is 15 points. Yeah. We now know that it's not. It's about 10 points, and it's been shrinking over the last 30 or 40 years, and it's been shrinking in tandem with the academic achievement gap, which has gone down by about the same amount. About a third of the difference between blacks and whites has been erased in IQ and has been erased in academic achievement uh, over the last 30 or 40 years. As all academic achievement in the total country has probably gone down somewhat. No, actually... It's the, the achievement of whites, so far as we can tell, has been pretty stable. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, and it, the, all of the gain is, uh, all of the, the gain for blacks is actual gain. The blacks are getting smarter, in other words. I'm reflecting better. the bias of my own experience, which uh, regular listeners to this program have heard me carry on about a great deal. Over many, many years of college teaching, it became my impression that students knew less and less mm -hmm. uh, because they were less and less adequately educated. Right. Well, there's uh, some evidence for that, um, uh, someone has done an analysis of high school textbooks over the last 30 years and has reached the conclusion that the average level of high school textbooks has been dumbed down That's by the two point. years. Exactly. Um, and uh, on on the other hand, well, there's lots of there's lots of other hands I could I could tap here, but let let's pursue the question of the black-white gap. Uh, even back when the gap was 15 points, in my view, it owed nothing whatsoever to genetics. There are 20 different indirect points you can make about uh, black-white differences, which the uh, people like Murray believe indicate that there's a genetic basis to them. They're all highly indirect. And let's take the one that most people find the most unsettling, and that is that there's a, an average brain size difference between blacks and whites. And brain size within each of those populations is associated with intelligence. Ergo, if intelligence is associated with brain size and brain size differs between blacks and whites, then that's a strong indication that there's a biological basis to the difference. Well, what's wrong with that? First of all, you don't always find a brain size difference. Secondly, uh, men and women differ in brain size by a much greater amount than blacks and whites, and yet men and women have the same IQ. There is a, a locale in Ecuador uh, where there is a group of people whose head sizes are four standard deviations. That's a lot, a huge amount, smaller than the population as a whole. And it turns out they do rather better in school <laughs> than the population in general. And most importantly, uh, which suggests that head size is, uh, brain size is not a, uh, a direct causal contributor to intelligence is the fact if you look within families, you know, who gets the luck of the genetic draw, which brother or sister has the biggest brain, which one has the smallest brain, there's no difference between those kids in their intelligence, which implies that there is no causal connection. So that, that's, that's one kind of indirect uh, uh, evidence. So your way of accounting for the on average lower IQ performance levels for black as compared to white kids is what? Uh, it's primarily environmental factors. Now, some that anybody would agree with, um, it's you live in an environment where people are uh, in, uh, in poor occupations or poorly educated or poorly motivated. You're surrounded by people whose intelligence level is less uh, than the population as a whole, and that's going to be damaging to your intelligence because that's uh, 
and what contributes to some of that low motivation? Well, let me give an example of a social psychological experiment that gives an, uh, give, make, make whites uh, surprised at, uh, at the different situation that confronts blacks and whites. Uh, a social psychologist got uh, two young black men and, and two young white men uh, to apply to jobs, presenting themselves, they were actually college students, but they presented themselves as articulate, pleasant people who were looking for a lower level entry job. They were presenting themselves as high school graduates. Uh, and they had identical uh, recommendations, identical letters describing them, identical uh, achievements, except for one thing. The white applicants had uh, a, a criminal conviction for, of a felony on their record, and the black applicants didn't. The white applicant was more likely to get the job than the black applicant, which gives you an idea of the ex extent to which, I mean, you and I live in worlds of affirmative action, but most blacks don't. They live in worlds where there are serious impediments to achievement, which is likely to affect motivation. Interestingly, <coughs> and this is a very exciting uh, aspect of your new book, Intelligence and How to Get It, even though there is um, a failure to fully develop intelligence because of all of these environmental limitations, which the ordinary, surely inner city black kid does encounter, you do argue and you muster data to demonstrate that a great deal of that can be made up or a leap forward is possible and can be, quote, engineered, can be inculcated and managed even for kids who show that deficit, so to speak. Much depends upon what is done and what kinds of innovative approaches are used in the school system itself. Uh, and yet other kinds of interventions, we will talk about those in related matters. Uh, directly after, we pause for these words. I'll hand directly back to Richard Nisbet. Um, we are, um, with, with the commercial interruptions, we may lose track a bit, but what I have in mind is to get into, if only briefly, what you review in terms of studies that have been done um, and the analysis you draw from those studies, what is possible in terms of, well, actually, it's in the title, isn't it? Um, intelligence and how to get it, why schools and cultures count. How to get it suggests intelligence, actual level of intelligent functioning can be significantly boosted upwards. Right. Uh, well, back to this question of what kind of intervention might be successful with uh, uh, underprivileged black kids. Uh, as I say, Head Start has not been notably successful, I think in part because kids are being returned to environments which are very suboptimal, uh, and, and the brain is like a muscle. You exercise it, and you keep exercising it, or it gets weaker. Shouldn't one point out as well that in all likelihood, mm -hmm. the schools they go to have teachers less adequate than the schools that their white suburban counterparts go to? Right. There's no question about that. And, they, and their peers in the classroom uh, are, are much less promotive of, of academic achievement. Mm -hmm. um, the statistic that's absolutely shocking is that there are inner city schools where the student turnover across the year on average is 100 mm percent. -hmm. So, and this is tremendously disruptive. I mean, a kid comes into a classroom which is doing work that, you know, is beyond where he, he is from in terms of his own background, uh, so he's thrown behind, or he's put into a classroom where he's already done the work, so he's bored and disoriented. Um, these classes, many of these children are not under uh, under good self-control. 
uh, and so they're disruptive to their fellows. So it's, they're going into situations which are uh, extremely non-optimal. There's the other another factor, isn't there, that within the black within the black youth culture in the inner city, there is a kind of a normative standard that if you uh, act smart and look as if you're interested in learning, uh, you're you're playing the white game and that is to be discredited. That is to be uh, punished or disdained. Right. I don't doubt that that's that goes on a lot. There are people who say it's not very important. There are schools where it's not a significant factor. Um, I don't know how to evaluate that. I, I, I don't doubt, however, that it's, that it's a significant factor under some circumstances. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are things that you can do that are uh, much more ambitious than Head Start, which tend usually are half-day programs, sometimes full-day programs. Uh, they don't focus that much on intellectual uh, skills. But if you do focus on intellectual skills, you get highly trained and highly motivated people. Uh, you spend uh, a lot of time on, uh, on intellectual issues with the kids. Uh, and you have a low uh, student-to-teacher ratio so that you have, let's say, one teacher with six kids. Uh, there are several intensive programs like this that show IQ gains that are very significant early on that sustain themselves well into uh, elementary school and sometimes beyond as well so that you get a five or six point IQ gain even by late adolescence as a result of this brief intervention for two, three, or four years uh, preschool uh, and which have big academic uh, achievement effects, much less likelihood of uh, being retained in class, much less likelihood of being put into a, a special education much, much greater likelihood of graduating from high school, greater likelihood of going to college, greater likelihood of home ownership and substantial employment later in life. So we know that even when you don't get sustained intervention in a kid's life, that early education can be terribly effective. Of the various factors you've named, which, which controls, again, more of the variance? Uh, uh, Teacher-student ratio, et cetera. Which, which are the most crucial uh, differences that could be introduced? Well, these are interventions which uh, you'll recognize the term are kitchen sink interventions mm -hmm. they just throw in everything but the kitchen sink and so and there's there's not been enough research to be able to pull them apart and I say see. this is what's yeah. crucial and this is not so essential though there should be and of all of the topics that we discussed tonight nothing to me is more important than the uh, necessity of doing more research on education and interventions to see what can be done not much has been done most of the research which has been done is of poor quality, uh, and there ought to be a hundred flowers uh, allowed to bloom there and study them rigorously and scientifically. There's study. this wonderful woman who, in Chicago, and at the moment I'm having a senior moment and I'm forgetting her name, who ran a private school, um, and has been much commended for what she did for black kids uh, in the inner city, but she, severe discipline, a lot of em emphasis on sort of classics and language and uh, and uh, verbal skills and all of her most of her kids shot forward tremendously right. and have gone on into adult life uh, at high achievement levels right uh, well there there are uh, programs which are uh, at the middle school level uh, which have been enormously successful the most well known is one called the KIPP program for knowledge is power program mm -hmm. uh, and this takes kids in the fifth grade uh, and keeps them through the eighth grade. We must talk more about that. I'm afraid, once again, I've got to intervene so as to meet my 
on schedule requirements. But let's talk about the KIPP program. I found that of particular interest um, reading your book, Intelligence and How to Get It. Our guest is Richard Nisbet, and we will return to him shortly uh, as we continue this discussion. But now to the newsroom and Paula Cooper. And we return to Richard Nisbet, drawing from, but of course we can't do full justice to the uh, full rich content of his new book, Intelligence and How to Get It, Why Schools and Cultures Count. That is, by the way, just published by Norton. Uh, we were talking about, you were about to talk about the KIPP program. Uh, yes, it was started uh, a few years ago uh, by two young teachers who had become familiar with uh, the work of a teacher in an inner city school system in Houston uh, who had lots of novel techniques for dealing with uh, these kids, these middle school kids. Uh, the KIPP program uh, is uh, much more uh, in depth than at most schools. It starts kids at 7.30 in the morning. It keeps them going until 5.15 at night. Uh, it meets uh, half days on Saturdays every other week, and it keeps the kids for an extra three weeks beyond the public school uh, time in the summer. Uh, and it's not just drill and kill, as the folks in education say. Uh, basically, they're giving them an upper middle class exposure to culture. They're giving them theater, music, sports, museums, uh, and these kids uh, have a, a, a much richer experience than you can expect for most uh, inner-city schools. Uh, the, res the result of this uh, intensive program uh, is that kids start out well below the national average uh, in reading and math and move dramatically forward. There was a study by SRI of the San Francisco area uh, middle schools that are run by KIPP. And on average, these uh, they've got about 25% of kids who are performing at national averages or higher. Uh, and this went up by the end of the first year only uh, to 44% performing at that level. About 37% performed at average levels, average national levels in math, and that was up to 67% uh, at the end of the year. So huge effects on these kids. Uh, by classrooms where, by the way, discipline is just taken for granted. Kids are not allowed to be anything but on task. They must look at whoever is speaking. So big effects of this intervention, which occurs well beyond early childhood. Sounds like a good thing maybe to do for a potentially bright kid from out of the ghetto is, if you can, send him to a nearby military school. Mm -hmm. Right. I, I don't know of anybody who's, who's looked at that. Uh, but the kind of the KIPP pattern that you've described mm -hmm. rather reminds me of what goes on in some military school. Uh, except I think they don't have to discipline their kids, and I don't know quite why. I don't know why they're so successful at that. They, they set expectations very high at the outset. Well, the woman I mentioned earlier, whose name has come back to me now because I've had assistance from my friends at the booth here, uh, is Marva Collins. And what Marva Collins did in her very well-known school, uh, was uh, required all of them to be in uniform. And that is, the uniform was blazers for the boys and uh, whatever for the girls, and uh, had a very st uh, heavy reading assignment and uh, recitation in class and uh, considerable discipline. And it was and many hours a day, more than the usual school day. And this uh, worked, uh, did a great deal for these kids. They came through. And the, the ultimate measure in terms of 
improvement in intellectual performance is that they did go the follow-on data. They did, beyond her, uh, her school years, go on to college. This was a preparatory or pre-college and did very well. And by now, many of them are um, alumni and are in professional life. And there were lasting effects. Right. Yeah, there, there are several demonstrations that you can have a huge impact in pre-K, early education, in elementary school, mm -hmm. uh, in junior high, and there are, it's surprising how social psychologists have come up with very small-seeming interventions uh, for junior high kids, high school kids, and even college kids that make a huge difference. I will assert, it's my opinion, not yours, um, but I'll assert it strongly, because I've said it strongly on other occasions, that one of the real uh, obstacles to this kind of improvement through schools is uh, the, um, some, of the, some of the bad teachers who remain fixed in place. And the great power of teachers' unions, which make it almost impossible to really sift through the core of teachers and get rid of the dead wood or get rid of the people who simply aren't motivated and are just there uh, collecting a sinecure. And that one of the best things we could do for kids in uh, the inner city, for that matter, the outer city, the best thing we could do is uh, kind of handle teacher uh, selection and teacher assignment on a merit, on a demonstrable merit basis, which these days we cannot do because of the power that we've ceded to the, the teachers' unions. Well, there's no question that the teacher makes a difference. Of especially course. the first grade teacher. Uh, to give an uh, indication of how important it can be, uh, if you look at a kid who's in uh, kindergarten, uh, is on track to not doing well in elementary school, or some indication either because the kid has been a behavior problem in kindergarten or because the kid comes from a very lower socioeconomic status. This is a kid who's on track to failure. Uh, if, if that kid gets a teacher who is in the top third in instructional quality, as estimated by observers who come in and observe the classroom, uh, that kid does as well as middle class kids and vastly better than that same kid mm -hmm. if he's put into a, a classroom with a first grade teacher who's in the bottom third. Very important points that you've made. Uh, and you, they are, of course, far more fully developed in this book that I'm very glad to recommend uh, to all who are listening, Intelligence and How to Get It. I should add that for social scientists, you write with wonderful lucidity, and uh, it all flows rather well. So this is a book uh, that, I'm, uh, that anyone interested in these matters would certainly profit from. Um, quick change of pace. I'm going to play you another clip from Charles Murray talking about another group, uh, one that I um, am more closely identified with. And uh, then I want to get your further thoughts on it. Here we go. I want to turn your attention to something quite different, a fascinating article of yours that I read in Commentary Magazine within the last year, I would oh, guess, yeah. about, of all things, Jewish intelligence. Jewish genius was the... Jewish genius. Yeah. Jewish attainment. You start with a rundown on how much the Jews have attained in terms of famous people and what they've and what I don't know. It had to be me that, uh, that writes this because uh, the Jews are just way too embarrassed to talk about this in public. I can't tell you the number of uh, people who have said to me, 
uh, who were Jews, who <laughs> said, look, we know this stuff is true, but, but don't talk about it. It's really don't make and, waves. And I, I actually gave a presentation before yeah. the article was published in, uh, at the Herzliya conference in uh, Tel Aviv uh, yeah. about a year and a half ago. And the combination of uh, expressions on the faces of the audience, sort of half pleased and half embarrassed as I yeah. went through the recitation. I could, I could well understand that. Of course, in your last book, where you dealt with eminence and uh, attainment at the highest levels, we talked about that book a mm -hmm. few years ago when it appeared, I suppose a lot of Jews turned up on those lists. Oh, yeah. There was a hugely disproportionate number. And what, what is fascinating about, about it is how quickly it happened. So you had uh, Jewish emancipation took place uh, in the end of the 1700s and the. What early do you mean by emancipation? Legal emancipation, where they they were given basically the equal uh, rights in yeah. European countries. So that that took place depending on the country from uh, from late 1700s to the mid 1800s, and it was as if a floodgate had been opened, and that as soon as Jews could participate in the uh, social and, and economic and scientific life of the country, they just flooded in. And Give me a list of ten, quickly. <laughs> who, who are we talking about? Yeah, well, you're talking about, uh, name the top ten physicists of the last century, and eight or nine of them have got to be, uh, whether it's Gelman or whether it's uh, Einstein himself, or whether it's uh, the, the leading quantum physicist was Schrodinger Jewish. You put me on the spot. Um, in um, philosophy, of course, uh, you've had uh, uh, Wittgenstein, well, you've had you've had lots, and mm -hmm. I don't. They, they just dominated. In the Nobel prizes, the proportion of Jews who have won those, uh, I can't remember the exact percentages. It's just multiples yeah. of the of the appropriate one. And there's an explanation for this. And that explanation is you guys are really smart. Uh, but that just begs <laughs> a larger question, doesn't it? Yeah, well, How did so that the, come so to the article case? the article was in part dealt with uh, the uh, research by. Uh, uh, Cochrane and Harpending and a third author, mm -hmm. where they hypothesize some reasons that this developed, and they think that elevated Jewish IQ is uh, limited to the Ashkenazi Jews, and they think that it occurred very recently in history, between about 800 and 1600 uh, BC, uh, AD. I, in the article, argue that it actually goes back farther than that. You go back to the Babylonian captivity. Yeah, that's that's one argument, uh, one possibility, that it was the, for the Babylonian captivity, you just winnowed off uh, an awful lot of the lower-class Jews. The folks they left back in Judea. Exactly. Drifted away from they early drifted Judaism. Away from it. But you can also make an argument that uh, in the first couple of centuries after the destruction of the Jewish temple, when... When Judaism became a very, uh, you know, a temple-based uh, mm -hmm. studying and the the Torah and so forth, it became intellectually really demanding to be a good Jew. Uh, you had to be not only literate; you had to be able to, to master some quite difficult texts to to perform your religious functions in the temple. And when it's that hard to be a member of a religion intellectually, what happens is a lot of people decide that other religions are a little bit more suitable for them. So you might have gotten a boiling away at that point, uh, which That's the sort of that. activity one still finds in the Orthodox yeshivas, uh, yeshivot, both in this country and surely in the Orthodox sections of Israel, where you spend your formative years reading Talmud and Torah and engage in exegetical discourse with your fellows. And you do it day after day after day. The thing is, it does even go back further than that. And so uh, even beyond the Babylonians, 
at that time, you'd already had the, uh, the the books of the Torah had been largely written mm -hmm. and so forth. So you clearly had a whole lot of verbal ability in this population way, way back then. <laughs> at this point in the article, as is an infinite regress, uh, or a regress uh, in any case, where I'm getting back to the uh, beginning and saying, well, why is it this one little tribe uh, in the Middle East should have had that? And there I had to fall back on the ultimate answer, which is the Jews are God's chosen people. And uh, Hardly, I, hardly <laughs> so. I'll, have to, I'll hardly just have so. to go with that. We are uh, uh, overdue, as usual, for some commercials. I'd love to get some further response, uh, get your thoughts <clears throat> on the very same question. And indeed, I wonder whether you accept the data uh, about Jewish eminence as such. I put those questions to Richard Nisbet. We'll look for his answers right after these words. And so we return to uh, Richard Nisbet. Shortly, we'll be on to the phones. Indeed, we're opening the lines right now. And the number, of course, is 5917200. Area code 312, if you need it. <coughs> then 5917200. <coughs> Pardon the throat clearing. And uh, for email, extension 720 at tribune.com. Uh, get those calls and emails in. We'll be with you shortly. I couldn't resist raising the question, uh, but you've been just tell about the Jews and their reputed higher intelligence, but you've been telling me just now that this was sort of opened up for general public awareness by a recent study, the study that Murray actually mentioned. Uh, yeah, the Co Cochrane and Harpending uh, study, and the point that they make is, is quite complicated. Let's see how simple I can make it. I mean, they start with the astonishing fact of Jewish achievement since roughly 1850 in the West. And, and the, the, the statistics are astonishing. I mean, they're overrepresented at the top levels of things like Supreme Court clerks, uh, uh, professors at uh, major universities, uh, Nobel Prizes. They're overrepresented in these things that are f by a factor of something like 15 to 1. By the way, is that true in Western Europe as well as in this country? I don't know. What I, the, the, the Nobel Prizes, of course, are worldwide. They're worldwide, sure. So, um, but uh, there's no question of, of huge overachievement uh, com in comparison to the Western population as a whole. The uh, question is how to explain that. Uh, some people have always preferred a genetic explanation. Some people have always preferred a purely cultural explanation. Cochrane and Harpending come along with a very interesting explanation where they say, look, uh, Jews had this interesting property. And here's a fascinating fact about the Jews. There was universal male literacy for the Jews 1,900 years before it was true of any other group. So for whatever reason, just by accident, you get this group that's literate. And now you turn them loose in Europe, where hardly anybody's literate. And there are jobs which require literacy, uh, like uh, money lending and uh, like estate management uh, and so on. And uh, Jews are set up for this because they're literate. Uh, now you begin to get natural selection that goes on. <coughs> because uh, the, the better you can do these things, uh, the more likely you are to, your children are to, uh, reproduce. Uh, you get uh, the, the, the bright child of the successful businessman marrying the bright child of the rabbi. And uh, you get a continual ratcheting up of the intelligence of this group. Now, why do we think that there, what is the evidence for being biological in some sense? Well, oddly enough, they point to a disease 
several types of diseases uh, which all involve excessive myelinization uh, of nerve fibers. And if you have that, uh, the, the, the person does quite well for a while, uh, <laughs> but eventually dies, typically, or at least gets so sick that they Tay die. Tay-Sachs is one of them. Tay-Sachs is one. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, what they say is you get these diseases if you, if you get both copies of the, of the bad gene. Uh, then they call on the analogy with sickle cell anemia. If you get both copies of that, you're in big trouble if you're black. Uh, if you get one copy, you have protection against malaria. If you get one copy of this myelinization gene, then you, what you get is smart, according to them. So if you have no copies, like most people in the world, not so smart. Smart because of a neuroanatomical <coughs> effect, right. having to do with faster um, synaptic transmission and more dendritic development, is that it? Exactly. Uh, it's a very creative theory. Uh, it's very interesting. Uh, it's an, there's a very easy way to test it, however, uh, and uh, that's to show that people who, in fact, have one copy of this gene, Jews who have one copy of this gene, are smarter than Jews who have no copies of this gene. That work has not yet been done, so we don't, we don't know. But I've been told by uh, some people who are very interested in psychology education in this country, <coughs> a simple statement which has been made more than once, i.e., uh, or quote, um, the uh, Asians are the new Jews, right. meaning they are uh, reaching the same levels or even higher. Well, actually, Jews and Asians could hardly be more different with respect to many kinds of attributes. I mean, the um, Asians are very good at spatial kinds of, uh, of work in general. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, if I were to pick a single intellectual attribute <coughs> uh, which it would be my candidate for something that differs ethnically on biological grounds. It would be that there is a specific disability for spatial relations for Ashkenazi Jews. Here you have a population of people who have an IQ of somewhere between 110 and 115 on the average, way above any other population group, but whose spatial abilities are five to ten points below the average. So you get um, this huge difference, like a 20 or 25 point difference in IQ terms. Uh, That's why I did so poorly as a kid trying to put together model airplanes. Oh, yeah. I, I'll, I'll see that and raise it. I, many a tear was shed <laughs> for me, and without benefit of being Jewish, uh -huh. over my inability to work with model airplanes. Uh, and so there, in that sense, they couldn't be more different. And there's an, another sense in which they couldn't be more different, and that is First of all, we can start with why is it that why is it that Asians look so smart? I am pretty confident there that there is no genetic difference between Asians and whites. There are two studies that are very convincing to me. Uh, one is done with a 1968 uh, senior high school class, uh, which was a massive study of the U.S. population. Lots of Chinese Americans and Japanese Americans. These are mostly. Uh, Second-generation kids, so there's no question of a language problem. They also were not selected on the way in, the way current uh, Asian populations are. You get into this country if you're an Asian these days because you have uh, some professional skills that are highly desirable. That wasn't true of prior Asian groups; they just were some kind of haphazard selection. Uh, and these groups 
Chinese uh, Americans and Japanese Americans were actually slightly lower in IQ than uh, Americans in general. Another uh, very ambitious study was done by Harold Stevenson at the University of Michigan. He looked at kids in Minnesota, uh, in Taiwan, and in Japan. Uh, they were all from the same social class stratus, all heavily middle class group. There was no difference in these kids at entry into uh, elementary school. Uh, I'm sorry, there, w there was a difference, and it was in favor of the American kids over the Taiwanese and over the Japanese kids. If you know about socialization practices, this isn't surprising. Middle class Americans do a lot to improve their kids' intellectual status. They try to get them to evaluate things. They talk to them a lot. They read to them a lot. That's not the job description of, an a, of a Japanese or a Chinese parent who are working much more on the social and emotional uh, properties of, of development. But, but the bottom line is by the fifth grade, there's no longer a difference in IQ, but the Chinese and the Japanese kids are 15 or 20 IQ point higher in math uh, ability than the American kids. It's for your readers who speak statistics, there are standard deviation to a standard deviation yeah. and a half higher. It's just a massive difference, and that comes from hard work. You know, with regard to the Jews, I wonder if this has any relevance as well, namely bilingualism or the push towards being bilingual. Um, as a kid, I was bilingual. That is, I was raised uh, with Im by immigrant parents, and my first language was, in fact, <coughs> Yiddish rather than English. So obviously, I acquired English at the same time. Um, um, for American-born, I'm American-born, but my parents, as I say, were immigrants. But for kids who are second or third or fourth generation American but Jewish, um, quite commonly, they uh, go to uh, after-school schools or go to Hebrew school, um, uh, even as a substitute for public school. Some do, uh, uh, and acquire Hebrew much more than they acquire Yiddish, as used to be true for my age cohort among Yiddish kids. But there's a kind of a push towards a certain amount of bilingual or near bilingual proficiency. I should think uh, having to acquire another language and having the ability to use both might somehow be a goad to keeping the brain fertile, keeping it working. That may well be. I, I don't know of any evidence, uh, one way or the other, about no, it's that. Just come to me for the first time. Yeah, I don't. I don't know of evidence. I mean, it's an extremely interesting hypothesis. We do know that there is a bit of a retardation in in uh, in language acquisition mm -hmm. for kids who are bilingual. And if you're learning, because it, it, it is confusing mm -hmm. at first to get these two different yeah. languages. So there's a bit of retardation in learning language, mm. which I believe is completely overcome by middle childhood. We will be going to the phones. <coughs> And uh, a moment ago, all the lines were taken. I see now one or two are available again. So if you're trying to reach us, make another quick try on 5917200. 312, the area code, then 5917200. If you'd rather reach us via email, and that's particularly useful for those who are listening over the Internet at some great distance, uh, the email address, extension 720, as one word, at tribune, T-R-I-B-U-N-E dot com, or the aforesaid 591-7200, right on to your contributions after we pause for this. And we go directly to the phones for calls to Richard E. Nisbet, author of the new book, Intelligence and How to Get It. And we go first to Jeff uh, here in Chicago. Good evening. Yes. Yes, sir. I, w 
I was uh, wanting to raise the point that it seems that the whole consideration of intelligence is a kind of a self-serving academic idea of intelligence. There's been a little bit of attention paid to the social uh, context of learning, et cetera, but it, the, um, the qualities that help people make it in life are not whether they did great in Latin or Shakespeare stuff or algebra, but more like initiative, creativity, curiosity, mental energy, response to setbacks, et cetera. And so even though, for example, you mentioned that uh, in the Jewish culture there's, there's a lot of academic achievement, those things are very stressed socially. And the, the point about males having to be literate, well, that was part of it, I'm sure. But it's somewhat of a matriarchy, uh, I think, as people see it. And mothers push kids, and Jewish kids are pushed. They're overachievers. They had the Holocaust. They got a lot to fight against. And as far as Charles Murray's comment about them being the chosen people, you know, uh, if you're really going to use that type of thinking, uh, then you can also use the type of thinking to say, well, you talk about the spatial retardation. Is that why they didn't go out of Germany in time to avoid the Holocaust? They it didn't get the spatiality figured. I mean, Could be. Of course, Murray's only fooling around with that last comment. Yeah, well, uh, you've got to be careful about that because it's yeah. kind of uh, it's, it's a little bit of a positive stereotype. So. Mm -hmm. uh, well, let's see. What, what, what would you like me to respond to in that? I, I thought that we had a lot of interesting observations. Let me pick out just one which uh, I'm inclined to agree with you about, and that is and you're quite right, I think, that academics are very likely to focus in on IQ uh, as the as the be-all and end-all of intelligence. Um, there's a psychologist named Robert Sternberg who has a very good antidote to that. He says, look, um, IQ tests measure analytic intelligence. It's a real intelligence. There's no question about that. But analytic intelligence is measured by giving people um, items to solve where all of the information that you need to solve the problem is present uh, on the page. Uh, there's typically only one solution uh, that works. Uh, the material is typically not very intrinsically interesting, uh, and uh, and that's to be contrasted with uh, problems that you have to solve in real life, which you solve, according to him, using practical intelligence. And in problems that require practical intelligence, you have to seek out uh, the information. It's not all information given in the problem. Many different solutions uh, can typically work. The material is embedded in real life. Uh, and uh, and the material tends to be highly intrinsically interesting. Uh, and I think we all know people who are smart and would say they're smart in an analytic way. I mean, you give them a problem and they'll do wonderful things with it. They can critique somebody else's ideas uh, very impressively. Other people who are pra practically intelligent, that is, they can figure out how to get from here to there uh, in some kind of cost-effective way. They're shrewd. They have common sense. Uh, and that is a different kind of intelligence. And Sternberg talks also about a uh, type of intelligence that you mentioned, which is creativity, which is different still from those others. And that those three types of intelligence are not all that highly correlated. Um, and anybody who works, as I do, with people, very, very smart people, graduate students uh, at the University of Michigan who are very smart people, but they, they certainly divide very clearly into these kind of lines. I mean, some student who's just brilliant in class discussion but really hasn't got a lot of horse sense and can't figure out how to do things and is not going to come up with an idea. Uh, another student who's, you know, is going to, by the time they get through graduate school, they will have done everything right. They will have taken the right courses. They will have done the right research. They've got a Vita that looks good. They know how to get things done. And creative person who maybe isn't so shrewd in a practical sense and maybe not so analytically brilliant, but comes up with an idea a minute, some of which actually pay off.
Of course, when, when I was running, uh, our thanks to the caller, the doctoral program in social psychology at the University of Chicago. Students were, of course, variable. One was a real flunk out. He's a nice kid. He tried hard, very sociable, very pleasant, but he just didn't really get it. And after a while, one really had to say to him, look, maybe this isn't for you. And still he persisted and wanted to go on with it. Finally, he came around one day and said, I'm leaving. Uh, I just really can't hack this. I think I just don't have the smarts the way, and he names a number of the other students, do have. <coughs> Ran into him about six years later. He had his own firm, and it probably made his first, second, and third million. Right. He's gone into business and did brilliantly in it right. with, with a novel idea for the business that he started. Right. So I, I, I'm, I'm certainly no IQ snob, partly because I don't have a terribly high IQ myself, but also because I don't believe IQ measures all types of intelligence uh, that are important. We go back to the phones, 591-7200, and to Charles in Ingleside. Good evening. You're on the air. Uh, good evening, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Rosenberg. Uh, you've done an admirable job covering intelligence learning of children. But I think uh, I tune in a bit late, and there may be an intervention before Head Start. A Dr. Eby, in the 70s and 80s, looked at the prenatal development and very early childhoods, uh, uh, well, birth defects and uh, developmental defects, sensory, uh, all that was tremendously high without prenatal care and early infant care, and then uh, very much minor incidents of these things where the care was good. This led to the WIC program, Women and Infant Children, and it's probably still going. And of course, there's going to be a big difference between poverty and the more, uh, well, economic differences between the two groups, too. So I think this may be a, a factor that you didn't cover or point to directly. That's true. I, I didn't touch on that. Uh, and there certainly is evidence that some things that happen prenatally are quite important. Um, certainly uh, cigarette smoking uh, and alcohol uh, and drug abuse are things that do have measurable uh, effects on intelligence. Things that happen uh, perinatally uh, can also be important. Uh, perinatal accidents, cord wrapped around the neck, uh, uh, hypoxia uh, for periods of time. What about childhood nutrition? Uh, I, I personally don't think that there's much of a role for nutrition mm -hmm. in intelligence for Americans. I think that's a that's a problem we no longer have. Um, and even in uh, circumstances where, where there was severe malnutrition, uh, there doesn't seem to have been much of a of a of a sustained uh, lack of intelligence. Our thanks to the caller. Let me read you a very interesting email that I've got in front of me. It comes from. Larry down in Tampa, Florida, who says, the U.S. is in trouble. Nearly all of my intelligent friends and I have not and will not reproduce. We're not unappealing nor unsocial. Rather, our above average IQs had in our 20s and 30s driven us to chase economic success, which has on the whole eluded us. All the while, the biological clocks of potential mates have nearly run their courses. <laughs> Most of my less gifted friends have had a few kids, even though it was not a very wise economic decision at the time. Many of us envisioned having children, but now in our 40s, and just now achieving a standard of living that would comfortably support family life, it's simply too late. 
I would guess that upwards of 35 to 40 percent of the most intelligent of those of us in our 40s will never have kids. Well, there's no question that uh, what this caller, what this emailer uh, refers to is a real phenomenon. The higher the level of education of people in this country, the higher level of intelligence, uh, the less uh, they reproduce. But that's been true over centuries, has it not? No, it's not been true over centuries, actually. Uh, so far as we can tell, uh, it's this is a very recent phenomenon. Uh -huh. In the late 19th century, your upper middle class family true. would have six, eight, sure, ten true. kids. Yeah. And the lower class family might have that many kids too, but a lot of them died. Uh, and so probably throughout human history, the, the, the best specimens in every respect, physical, mental, moral, were more likely uh, to reproduce and their progeny were more likely to survive. It's a very recent event. Charles Murray, in an earlier book uh, with Hernstein, uh, maintained that uh, we're getting s severe what they call dysgenesis as a result of this, mm -hmm. which results, that is to say, the genetic pool is getting worse because the smarter people are having fewer kids, the less intelligent people are having more kids. So that works against the evolutionary extrapolation that intelligence is, a, is of survival value, therefore as you go on with the human race, it should grow smarter and smarter. Right. Well, probably in most of our environments that was true. I and mean, that's undoubtedly why we kept getting smarter and smarter is because the smarter offspring uh, had an advantage. Um, I don't share with Murray the view that uh, there's significant dysgenesis. Uh, it takes a very long time, over many, many generations, to have a very substantial degree of selection before you get a difference. First of all, I don't think there's much genetic difference at all <coughs> between lower class and upper middle class people. Uh, there, is, there is some for sure, uh, but not a lot. The average IQ of people in the lower third of the socioeconomic stratum in this country is about 95. The average IQ of people in the upper third uh, is about 105. That's a 10-point difference. That's been stable. And you, and you think with significant environmental change, with significant experiential change, you could get a boost of 10 points? Yes, you can get a boost of 15. You can get a, uh, somewhere between 12 and 18 points is, yeah. the, is what you get as a result of a, of a a very substantial uh, intervention, namely adoption. But you can get a very big fraction of that uh, with smaller interventions at various points in life. Back to the phones and to the email right after a last round of commercials, which comes immediately. And uh, directly to Joe in Palatine. Good evening, sir. Good evening, gentlemen. Thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. Uh, I come from a family of immigrants uh, who survived the Holocaust. And uh, there's no question that uh, education was imperative. I mean, there, you went to school, you went to college, and you, you learned, you studied. And I think part of that was uh, the survival of, uh, of the persecuted people in, in Europe. Uh, education was a must if they were going to survive because of the, uh, the anti-Semitism. Uh, I don't think we have as much of that in this country, but I do believe the the emphasis on education has continued. Uh, and uh, I, I, you know, going to school with uh, kids of various uh, ethnic backgrounds, I, I I never felt any more intelligent than any of the others. Uh, but uh, study uh, did pay off, uh, and maybe others were uh, forced. Uh, we're playing ball. I was forced to go to Hebrew school. 
So, are, by the way, are you bilingual in English and Hebrew? Uh, well, my, my Hebrew is not anywhere as good as it used to be. Uh, mm -hmm. Yiddish is still uh, still available to me. Oh, really? Uh -huh. uh, but uh, certainly, when I was younger, I, I was very comfortable with Hebrew. And of course, if you don't use it, you lose it. No, lono yetsreden bisul mamalushin. The mamalushin is there again. All right. We thank you, sir, for the call. You're welcome. Um, and we'll go. There are now some lines available. At last, if you were trying to reach us, do certainly make another try. 591 7200. 591 7200. One emailer raises this basic, simple question What does your guest make of the work of John Philippe Rushton? That's a, a significant name in this general realm, is it not? Well, he's certainly very well known. I, I'd say he qualifies as being notorious. Uh, mm -hmm. He's. In the original meaning of notorious. Right. Um, and uh, he he's associated with many opinions, which I certainly disagree with. Uh, he's uh, probably the main proponent of the idea that uh, the black-white difference in IQ is largely genetic. Uh, he believes there's a, a white-Asian difference in IQ that's uh, largely genetic. Um, he believes that... Uh, uh, interventions to change IQ are basically pointless, that intelligence is 80% heritable. I, I think all of those things mm -hmm. are wrong. Um, Let me uh, put to you a um, another email. I am a, this is from Joe. I'm not sure where he's located. I am a first-time father with a daughter who's about to turn three on Monday. Recently, I read a book that claimed that the first three years are the most important in, quote, grooming, a child's intelligence, or at least her capacity for knowledge. With my daughter turning three, I'm quickly beginning to fear that perhaps there is more that I could have done to help her to prepare for intellectual success. What are your thoughts on this, and do you have any comforting words for a warrior like me? Yeah, don't worry. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I, there's a book uh, that I adhere to, uh, which is called The Myth of the First Three Years. Um, and there is this idea that uh, got a lot of currency that uh, what happens in the first three years is crucial. And this is the intelligence is clay model. That is, you mold the clay, and then it's, it takes that form, and it doesn't change it uh, throughout life. Um, I think that the mind is like a muscle. The more you exercise it, uh, the smarter you are. Uh, if you get a lot of exercise early in life and then sit on a couch forever, you're gonna, not going to have strong muscles. And if you do the intellectual equivalent, you're not going to be very smart. And I certainly think there are things you can do at every stage of life uh, to keep yourself intelligent. And, uh, and, there, and what happens in the first three years of life is important. My guess is that you've probably done the most important things. Middle class people, and there are huge class differences in this, but middle class people, I'm assuming you're middle class, yes? It's, it's uh, an email, so we don't yes. have the guy. Oh, right, okay. Uh, I'm guessing that the person is middle class, and middle class people do a lot of right things with their kids. First of all, they talk to them. Uh, working class people are less likely to actually talk to their kids. Uh, they're less likely to include them in the dinner table conversation. They're less likely to read to them. 
They're less likely to do intellectual skill training, like teaching them how to categorize things. What's that? That's a duck. What's a duck? A duck's a bird. What's a bird? A duck. Where's an animal? Sort of automatic teaching things that, that middle class people know to do with their kids, which are going to stand them in very good stead in elementary school and, and further in life. What about all of those enhancement devices and enhancement programs? The mother who anxiously plays a lot of Bach or Mozart to her six-month-old. I don't know of any evidence that that sort of thing does any good or that the baby Einstein toys do any sort of good. On the other end, I don't know of any evidence that they do any harm, so I don't see anything against them. Um, but I, I know I raised my kids without those things, and I, I don't feel that they were deprived. Back to the phones. Here is Jeff in Chicago. Good evening. I've got three kids, and I've done all those things you're supposed to do, took them to museums, read books to them, talked them to the dinner table. And right now my oldest daughter is uh, at Vassar on a full scholarship, so I kind of think I did the right thing and I was a success. <clears throat> now, all through their public school years, I noticed that the public schools were spending a lot more money on <clears throat> kids that uh, were falling behind. And it seems it, it kind of annoys me that the, the emphasis in the public school is not to reward my successful kids and to reward my hard work, but instead to bail out these failures. Uh, is that what you're calling for now, more efforts to bail out the failures as parents? Well, yes. I think that uh, society benefits enormously when we get people up from a low level of achievement to a high level of achievement. We, we benefit even economically. But I'm sympathetic with your complaint uh, about what happens with the bright kids. When I first moved to Ann Arbor, which is a... Uh, a, a very liberal community, God love them, but uh, when I got there, uh, I was told a story about the public schools there where some, somebody shows up with their first grader to the teacher on the first day and says, you know, my, I'm a little bit worried about what my kid's going to be like in, in school because uh, she reads at a fourth grade level already. And the teacher says, oh, don't worry, we find they level out by sixth grade, <laughs> uh, which I think is, a, is horrifying. Uh, there are a lot of things you can do with extra bright kids uh, that uh, that cost nothing uh, and that keep them from being bored and that stimulate them. I mean, just giving more difficult math homework uh, to them, uh, giving them reading assignments which are uh, on a on a higher level than other kids. So I'm I'm very sympathetic with your complaint that not enough is done for bright kids. I think it's counterintuitive though to reward failure. I I can't think of any successful system that works by rewarding failure. Well, I think that's a, a wrong way to interpret what's going on. If you can intervene with kids uh, at even fairly high cost, these programs I was talking about, I don't know if you heard earlier in the program, uh, there are programs that can you can intervene with kids uh, prior to elementary school, uh, and you can greatly affect the likelihood that, that we will have to pay for them as taxpayers in a repeated class, or that we will have to pay extra for them in a, in a uh, special education class or that we will have to uh, pay extra for them because they become criminals because they dropped out of high school and don't have any skills. These, uh, there's a Nobel Prize winner at the University of Chicago economist named James Heckman who estimates that the very best of these programs pay back $8 for every dollar spent, which is equivalent of a 17% on investment, which looks awfully good at this particular juncture in our financial history. Sir, we thank you for the call. Very glad to have heard from you. And let me see, we've only got about a minute and a half left. So my apologies to those who are still 
waiting online. I fear we can't get to you tonight. I do want to say something quickly about tomorrow night. We'll be on the Internet version of the program tomorrow night, back on the air uh, on Friday night with a program about consumer fraud. But for tomorrow night, a very interesting program, a replay with live commentary from me of a program we did with a man who did a major book on uh, your about IQ of a sort, religious IQ, and how low that is for lots of Americans, examining what we don't know and should know about the history of religion. You can hear that tomorrow on the Internet version of the program. You just go to the website, WGNRadio.com, at around 8.30, and you'll find a link provided to get to WGN2, the Internet form of the program. Um, are you... Um, what's, what's the greatest obstacle that needs to be overcome to alter our educational system for the better, along the lines you've been talking about? You know, that kind of catches me unawares. I mean, there are several things I would do. First of all, pre-K, probably associated with schools is a, is a better idea than doing them uh, in centers that are detached from schools. Getting much better people uh, who are involved in, in pre-K, who are much better trained, more motivated, mm -hmm. emphasizing more the intellectual aspects of it. Uh, we need uh, better teachers at all level. I, I agree with you that uh, poor teachers are, are retained. And we have as a fine, available auxiliary this excellent book by Richard E. Nisbet, laying it all out in much fuller detail than we could develop tonight, Intelligence and How to Get It, published by Norton. With that, time to close down. Thanks to our guests. Thanks to all for listening, and a most cordial good night.